God, I thank you for this day. Beginning of a new week. I thank you for the opportunity you give us to come corporately together and worship you. Break open your word and have you speak to us. God, I pray that all the tough times from last week would be completely out of our minds. You'd take those away. That the anxieties and the fears and hesitations about what lies ahead this week, you would take those away as well. So that we might be able to focus for a brief time totally on you. You are the object of our worship, Lord. You're welcome in this place. And as we come today, Lord, we remember that we've not always been perfect during this past week, during the past parts of our lives. So we say to you, God, individually and corporately, we're sorry for the things that we have done that we know we should not have done, the shortcomings, the errors. And even as I say those words coming to your mind are those very incidences. As they come, speak them silently to God. Let him know that you are sorry about those. And God, we're sorry also for those things that you've commanded us to do, but for whatever reason, we have failed to do them. God, you call both of those sin. And Lord, we're sorry that we have sinned against you. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for us. To pay the penalty for our sins. To purchase a place for us in heaven so that we might spend eternity with you. And just now, Lord, please send your Holy Spirit to fill us to overflowing, full of power, full of love, compassion, comfort, peace, grace, in order that we might be able to do the things that you have called us to do. Ah, we thank you for all this. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, as you've heard me say before, it, it makes me uncomfortable 
to be up here on weeks that we're not in a series. There's just something. I'm a series kind of person. I love to go through series. Um, when we look at this church being around for about three years, and we determined in the beginning that we would look at the book of Matthew, study that uh, for the sh- first short while. We began that in January of uh, 2011, and a few weeks ago we finished up Matthew 20. So we've got a little more to go in, in Matthew before we get through, but it's been full of series that we were looking at. Some of the other guys prefer to do standalones uh, messages, and that's fine. I mean, there's places for both. I just find myself, even in, in crafting a message, find myself thinking to the next week or the week after and how this might tie to whatever. And so you're going to get a, me- a, a, a series this week, even though you didn't expect to have one. This is part one, it says, of when God gets your attention. I just simply could not cut it off where it would make sense today uh, without leaving, without letting you stay here till about one o'clock. So uh, I'm sure you will appreciate it come the end of this that, uh, that we decided to do it this way. When God gets your attention, what do you do? Maybe you're sitting there saying, well, I don't think he's ever gotten my attention. I bet he has. When he gets your attention, what do you do? He has a lot of different ways of getting our attentions. You've probably noticed that. Sometimes, sometimes God gets your attention through a phrase that someone says. Just a phrase. And it's exactly the words you needed to hear at that moment. You may not even know the person, but they say something that is just perfect for the situation you find yourself in. Sometimes God gets your attention through a problem, maybe a financial problem, perhaps a medical problem, a relational problem among your family or friends. Sometimes God gets your attention through successes. Have you ever had that happen? You get to that point in the success where you think, well, I couldn't have done this on my own. This is miraculous. This is extraordinary. All these things had to come together, but God must have had a part in this. Maybe he's trying to tell me something. Let me pick up where I left off several weeks ago. With, with the message about how much God loves you. And I think we need to reemphasize that frequently here at Renovation Church. There's so many of us, so many folks that either have forgotten or never knew that God loves them and that he loves them so deeply that he did give his son for them. I said that God made you to love you, and he made you to live for the purposes that he has in mind for you. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? He has a purpose for your life. That means that your life, your little pipsqueak life, sitting here in Little River today, your life has meaning. 
Wrap your mind around that one. Your life has meaning. God wants to do something in your life. And not only does he want to do something in your life, he wants to do something great in your life. And I know you're thinking, well, what is he talking about? Something great. He wants to use you to make a difference in the world. Let me put it to you that way. Well, now I know he's crazy. Think for a minute. If you were to share the good news of the gospel with your children and they come to faith in Christ, you've changed the world. You don't know what impact that might have. And that's just a small thing that you could do. You can impact this community. You can impact this nation. You could go on a mission trip to one of the places that we uh, uh, send people to. And we do bring them back, by the way. Uh, You could go on one of those mission trips and truly impact the world. But it doesn't have to be a big mission trip somewhere. You influence people around you every day. Your sphere of influence is an entire universe to many of you. And if God wants to do something great in your life, how are you going to respond to him? Have you thought about that? How will you respond? And I know you're thinking, well, God would never use me. My goodness, if you only knew what I've done, if you knew where I've been, if you knew this and this and this, couldn't be talking about me. Yes, I'm talking about you. We take a look at this book, this Bible, And there's a number of people in here, a lot of people in here, that God used in the greatest of ways. And all of those people, every last one of them had the same feelings that you're sitting there thinking as I'm saying these words to you. Not me. Couldn't use me. You've got to be kidding. Somebody else. We're going to look at one of those people for the next couple of weeks, actually. Um, Walton... And I talked earlier, several uh, weeks ago, just having coffee one day about the fact that, gosh, we spent a lot of time in the New Testament. We probably ought to do something in the Old Testament. And then he does a uh, message on David, and Jay did a message on uh, Ezekiel, not Elijah, Ezekiel. And here I find myself getting ready to talk about Moses. It's not, that, it's not that we've thrown out the Old Testament. You know we have plenty of references, even when we're looking at Matthew to the Old Testament. One doesn't live without the other. But you can't say the Old Testament is irrelevant to us because that was so long ago, you know. And Jesus came and everything changed. And no, it all fits together. So let's look at some of the guys, and in particular this, this Moses guy today, from the Old Testament and see if perhaps we can find anything in their lives that is like us today. Moses had an immediate reaction to God when God said, I'm going to use you for something great. I've got something fabulous for your life. And his immediate reaction, Moses' immediate reaction, was just like many of us. He was confused. First of all, what? 
Did I hear you right? You're going to use me? He didn't know what to say. But he did come up with some questions. And that's what I want us to base our message this week and next week on is some of the questions that Moses had because I think we have the same exact questions. Moses, you may remember, had spent his first 40 years of his life in Egypt in the palaces of the Pharaoh. He was at the very top of the food chain. He was at the center of the government. He knew all the bigwigs, all the ins and outs in the Egyptian government. But he began to get frustrated because the nation of Israel was in captivity in Egypt. And they were being mistreated. He was frustrated because here he was, a man of power, a man of means, but he couldn't really do anything about it. And in his frustration, he lashed out one day and killed one of Pharaoh's men. And he took off into the desert, a desert called Midian, where he spent the next 40 years of his life, working for a guy named Jethro. He married, eventually, Jethro's daughter, so he was married to the boss's wife, uh, the boss's daughter. Uh, he was in line to inf- inherit this family business. I mean, life was going pretty well for him. In those days, in that place, he would have been considered quite wealthy. Potential was great for him. The future seemed to be laid out as far as he could see ahead of him. And then he ran into this problem. This one tiny little problem. He ran into a bush. And no, it wasn't George Bush. It was a burning bush. So George can't get blamed for this one. And this bush, well, let's look at what the Bible says about this bush. We're in Exodus chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. And in this church, we believe that the Bible is the infallible Word of God. It's the only standard that we have for our faith and our life. So listen as I read to you from God's Word. Exodus 3, 1, and I'm reading New Living Translation. It's up here. If you borrow one of these, it's going to be an NIV, and I don't know what you brought with you, but we're in the New Living Translation. One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, and suddenly the angel of the Lord appeared to him as a blazing fire in a bush. Moses was amazed because the bush was engulfed in flames, but it didn't burn up. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? I mean, what little bit I know about science, I know that when something burns, it's consumed. You end up with ash. At that moment, everything changed for Moses. God got his attention at that moment. And it changed his life forever. You and I are probably not going to be tripping through the desert and come upon some bush that's burning. But I think most of us sitting in this room 
will at some time or multiple times in our lives have a burning bush experience. And I think you need to be able to identify what it looks like and think about how you might respond to it. So let's see what happened in Moses' life. A burning bush experience is, is when in the midst of your ordinary routine, and he was, this, was, this was in the middle of his ordinary routine. This was a common old bush growing on the side of a mountain. There were hundreds, probably thousands of bushes just like this all over that desert mountain. In the midst of his routine, when you least expected, and he wasn't expecting this now, this was totally unexpected. Moses had been living in the desert for 40 years. He had gotten up every morning, looked out his tent, I guess, uh, at the landscape for 14,600 mornings it looked exactly the same. This bush was here, this one, this one, this one. I can imagine after 14,600 mornings that he probably had names for each of those bushes and he would know exactly if one leaf were to fall off of a, off of a bush. And then this happened, this burning bush experience. So in the midst of your routine, when you least expect it, you're suddenly surprised by God's, uh, God's presence. Now, if we come to church on Sunday morning, Monday nights here, uh, you rather expect that you're going to experience God's presence here in some way or another. Last week, we had a powerful outpouring of God's presence at the service. But on a Thursday afternoon at 2 o'clock, you're probably not expecting God's presence to show up. Tuesday night at 8.30, mm, probably not looking for God's presence. When you least expect it is when his presence shows up. And what made this burning bush experience so extraordinary was the fire. The fire, God was in the middle of this bush. His presence changed things. God's presence always changes things. You can't have an experience with God without being changed. I don't think it's possible. I think if you've had a true experience with God, you're different. You can't ever be the same that you were before. God's presence caused this bush to catch fire. God's presence causes our lives to catch fire. And when our lives catch fire, God can do something in our lives, through our lives, with our lives. Now look at what happened. When Moses began to approach the bush, he, looking at uh, Exodus chapter 3, the next two verses, 4 and 5, it says... When the Lord saw that he had caught Moses' attention, and I underlined that for you, he caught Moses' attention because that's what God wants to do. He wants to do that with you as much as he did with, with uh, Moses. He wants to catch your attention just long enough so he can say something to you, just long enough so he can 
Have you received the power that he wants you to have? Just long enough so that he can have you receive faith enough to get through whatever experience it is that he's going to lay out before you. When the Lord saw that he had caught Moses' attention, God called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Don't come any closer, God, God told him. Take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. What was the first thing Moses heard? His name. God calling his name. It became for Moses very personal, very quickly. And a burning bush experience is going to be a personal experience for you. You're going to very personally see what God can do in your life that only God can do uh, in your life. And the story continues. Moses hears about this great thing that God wants him to do, and he's got some questions, of course, and he wonders, almost out loud, how's this going to work out? You've got what for me to do? Really? He asks the same kind of questions that you or I would ask given the same circumstances. And God says, I want to do something in your life. What kind of questions might you come up with? I came up with four. Uh, I'm sure there's others. I came up with four. Um, and to keep us from being here till 1 o'clock, I'm going to look at two this week, and we'll have a series next week. I'll be able to look at two more, okay, if you'll, if you'll bear with me. The first question that Moses asked was this. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I to do this? I can't do this. You're talking about me? Who am I? Exodus 3, 11 through 12 says, Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Moses asked God. How can you expect me to lead these Israelites out of Egypt? Moses was saying, Yeah, right, God. Yeah. How am I going to do this? I'm... I'm really too ordinary. I'm not qualified for this job. Find somebody else. And the truth is, if God asks you to do something in your life and you're just looking at yourself, you aren't qualified for the job. You're always going to be too old or too young too fat or too skinny, too uh, bald or too hairy. <laughs> You're always going to be too employed or too unemployed or too something. And Moses says, I can't do this. Who, who am I? Moses was hearing this uh, knocking He was hearing God's call 
on his life. But he didn't feel qualified to answer the knock. He didn't feel qualified to answer that call on his life. Some of, uh, some of the folks in here know that, well, all of you know that Halloween's coming up this month, I know. But some of you know my feelings on Halloween, and it's not that it's, uh, I, I, I'm not against it because it's uh, uh, satanic or anything. I, I just hate Halloween. I've always hated Halloween. I think it's the stupidest thing to go around knocking on doors in the neighborhood asking for something, you know? You work for the government. Um, so, at our house, and this has happened many times, at our house it's Halloween. And once again, George has forgotten to get a bag of candy to give out at the door. And the little munchkins show up at the door knocking, and you can hear them laughing and tripping. All the lights outside are off now. I've turned those off long before. I didn't want any lights on to signal to anybody that we were there. Knock comes on the door, and I just sit there. I'm not answering the door. Now, if it's Walt and his kids... They've learned, how 10 years or something, they've learned that uh, if they'll call ahead, we'll let them in. But uh, you better call ahead if you're going to get any candy at the Wilsons. Uh, so we don't give out any candy on Halloween. I don't have to buy any candy. We don't have to give any out. And I think a lot of us feel that way in our relationship to God as well, don't we? When we hear him invite, when we hear him knocking on the door of our hearts, placing a call on our lives, saying, I want to do something great in your life. Well, our response is kind of like, uh, if I go to the door, I don't have anything to give him. He's going to be embarrassed and I'm going to be embarrassed, so it's better if I just don't answer the call. I'll just sit here. And I submit to you that Moses felt exactly the same way. But God had an answer for Moses. We look down here. Uh, Moses said, who am I to do this? Who am I to you know, go to the, appear before Pharaoh? And God said in uh, Exodus chapter 3 verse 12, I will be with you. Moses wasn't expecting that. How do you counter that one? How do you get out of that one? I will be with you. God could have built up Moses' ego, of course. Wouldn't we do that in a business situation if we wanted somebody to do a job that we had for them and, and uh, we didn't really want to ask anybody else or we thought this person was best qualified, but they, they said, no, nah, I, don't, I don't want to do that. I mean, Moses could have said, what do you mean? Who am I? And God would say, you're the guy who grew up in Pharaoh's household. That's who you are. Well, who are you? You're the one who understands the ins and outs of the government in Egypt. You're personally the best guy we have. 
the best guy for the job. But instead, because he knows even that wouldn't change Moses' mind, God says, tell you what, I'll be with you. God didn't point to Moses' qualifications. He pointed to his own greatness. He wasn't looking at whether Moses was qualified or not qualified. He was saying, I will be with you. He was saying, this is what I can do. I wouldn't call you if I wasn't going to be with you. For heaven's sake, Moses. Some of you need to hear that right now, today. I will be with you. That may be the very reason that you're here today. You're going through some great transition in your life. You find yourself here today transitioning. Everything's up in the air. Everything's changing. You need to hear God say, I will be with you. Some of you may be in the midst of the greatest problem ever in your life. Job-related, health-related. It's never been this tough before. You don't know how in the world you're going to get through it. You don't know how in the world you're going to have strength to even think about getting through it. And God brought you here today to say, I'll be with you. And I know that some of you, as you came in today, you're feeling a tap on your shoulder. God saying to you, I've got something big for your life. I'm not through with you. Remember, it doesn't matter how young you are or how old you are. I've got something for you. I want you to do something. God's saying, whatever it is, I'll be with you. Look at Psalm 91, verse 15. This is not from the NLT. This is from God's Word translation. Uh, the words were perfect here, so that's why I chose this one. Psalm 91, 15. When you call on me, this is God talking. When you call on me, I will answer. I will be with you when you're in trouble. I will save you. And I will honor you. God's on your side. He wants you to win. He's not going to put you out there by yourself, send you to the wolves. So the big idea for today is this. In, in the end, it's not your ability that matters to God. It's your availability. Are you making yourself available he doesn't care about the qualifications. He's going to equip you to do whatever it is that he calls you to do. Are you willing to be available? I'm going to be with you. All of us feel inadequate at times. God will be with us no matter what. So when Moses says, who am I? Well, it doesn't really matter. It makes no difference at all. God will be with you, whatever the circumstance. 
And after God says, I will be with you, then the second question comes out. Moses says, uh, okay, you got me on that one. How about this one, God? How about this one? So you're going to be with me, and if you're going to be with me, who are you? First of all, he asks, who am I? And he's saying to God, who are you? Excuse me for being doubtful, God, but how are you going to give me strength? And God gives Moses one simple answer. Two words. I am. Who are you? I am. Exodus 3, 13 through 14 in the NIV says, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. I am has sent me to you. And Moses had to be thinking, that's going to be a help? I am? Can't you even finish the sentence? Give me something, God. I, I need your help here. I can't do this by myself. What does that mean? I am. What does that mean? It's one of the most powerful and important names of God. Maybe the most important and powerful name of God. But what does it mean? What God's saying to Moses here was that he was giving to Moses to give to the people who uh, he was going to send him to to tell them this. Tell them that, the one, that I am the one who can meet their needs wherever they arise. Whatever needs they are, I am the one who can meet those needs. How do we know that for a fact? Because in the Old Testament here, over 600 times God uses that name. I am. In a seminary, we even had another name for the name. The name for the name was Tetragrammaton. Wow, we had to come up with a name for the name. That makes us important, doesn't it? Particularly when it has over eight letters. <clears throat> Tetragrammaton. Tetra means four. If you counted, I don't know whether you did or not, I am doesn't have four letters. It has three letters. So what is Tetragrammaton all about? Well, the Hebrew word is this, reading from right to left, yod, hey, vav, hey. And if Luke will translate it to English, it's Y-H-W-H. -H. Four letters, tetragrammaton, four letters. So powerful was this name that the Jewish people at the time, and even the Orthodox Jews today, will never say that name. 
I think one reason is they don't really know how to say the name because Hebrew had no, vow, uh, no uh, yeah, vowels in it. So he didn't know what the, word, what the vowels in between those letters was. Four letters. They would write those four letters to stand for I am. I am. More recently, uh, to make it easier for some of us to say the word, we've added some vowels in there. And we come up with now the word Yahweh. Yahweh. We put an A and an E. We don't know whether those are the right words, right uh, letters or not to make up the word. But at least we can pronounce it if we use this. In doing some reading in the Old Testament, perhaps you've run across two spellings for the word Lord. There's one that's spelled with all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And there's another one that's spelled with a capital L, small case O-R-D. Have you ever wondered why the printer made a mistake? Well, the capital Lord is that word we're talking about, the name, Yahweh, tetragrammaton. Anytime you see that, Yahweh is used in the original scripture. Anytime you see Lord, it's, it's a, a lesser name than uh, that first name. And then when we got to the point that we were going to print Bibles, they weren't inscribed anymore, we got to the point where we were going to print Bibles. Someone came up with the bright idea that we would just use the word Jehovah to incorporate those letters. Jehovah. Yahweh is much, is much, much better. And God keeps using this name, this I am name, and he keeps adding endings to it for the circumstances. As a new need comes up, he adds another name behind I am. They had a need for food. They had a need for provisions. And when that came up, God said, I am your provider. Jehovah Jireh. I am your provider or your provision when they had a need for victory in their lives, either their personal lives or the life of their nation, God said, I am your victory. I am your banner. Jehovah Nisi. When they had the need for peace in their lives, God said, I am your peace. Jehovah Shalom. And when they just needed his presence, God said, I am there. Jehovah Shammah. Every time somebody had a need, God gave them a new name for himself. It's like a diamond with all these different cuts in it. And every time you turn it just a little bit, you see a different facet to that diamond. That was God's way of saying, I will meet that need in your life, whatever that need is. And Jesus carried it forward into the New Testament. That would be no surprise, would it? 
Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. And he said, I am the light of the world. He said, I am the living water. I am the resurrection and the life. And when Thomas said, we don't know the way. How can we go where you're going? We don't know the way. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Jesus said, I am the gate. Many others, but my favorite of all, appears in John chapter 18. John chapter 18, the the evening of the Last Supper. The Last Supper is finished. The disciples have gone out uh, through the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed. The disciples couldn't stay with him. They slept. Judas had already betrayed him and gotten the the money, and he was on his way with with, uh, men from the temple, the temple guards, and with some Roman soldiers. And it says in Scripture that a cohort of soldiers came with him. If you look up cohort, I mean, we see these movies and we think, okay, there was three or four people came to arrest Jesus. It's just one man, you know, three or four people. A cohort is 300 to 3,000 soldiers. My goodness, for one man? And they come into the Garden of Gethsemane asking, where is he, Jesus of Nazareth? Where is this Nazarene? Where is Jesus? And Jesus steps out of the shadows, and you know what he says? In your NIV Bible, he says, I am he... But you know what he really said? If you look at the Greek, he said, I am. Two words. I am. And you know what happened? That cohort of soldiers, let's say it's only 300, they fell to the ground. All their armor, swords, spears, Armor, helmets, daggers, lanterns, everything went flying. Can you imagine the sound that that made when all these guys fell to the ground? All because Jesus said, I am. There's power in that name. It is an important name. It's the most important name that we know of. And in a world where we say, I wish, God says, I am. I am all you need. I am your provider. I am your peace. I am your healer. I will meet your needs. And God says, I want to do something great in your life. And we're okay with that. But then we come with our questions, just like Moses, our questions. And, and you know, that's, that's common. That's a common experience. But you know what I've learned over the years, this... Uh, I don't dye my hair gray. It actually is this color. I know it's hard to believe. Um, 
I've learned through experience and reading the Bible that God always comes through. He never fails. He always supplies what you need. He doesn't give you what you want. Sometimes he will. Doesn't give you what you want, but he always, always, always supplies what you need. And he didn't always show me throughout my life how it was going to work. He didn't say, George, okay, first we're going to do this, and then we'll do this, and you'll go over here, and, and this is the end game. God doesn't work that way. But if you don't do like Moses and take that first step of faith, that start, if you don't take that first step, you're never going to. It'll never happen. You've got to trust him enough to step out in faith. And then he will cause those things to happen one after another, after another, after another, after another. And you can see the miracles taking place right before your very eyes. That's the way God works. I am. I am. I guarantee you, you can watch those miracles before your very eyes as they take place in your life, in the, in the life of those around you. Who are you? Moses asked God. I am. I am the one who can meet all of your needs. Let us pray. God, thank you. I thank you for your name. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for displaying your glory over and over and over again. Not just in your book, but in my life. I thank you for allowing me to see that, to see your presence, to feel your presence. And I pray for each one of us here today. That one that's sitting here today and you are literally tapping them on the shoulder this morning. Saying, he's talking about you. I pray that that person would step forward and say, here I am, God. Use me. I'm here for you. In Jesus' name, amen.